Welcome, everyone. You're tuning in to the Beyond the Pulse podcast, brought to you by the expert doctors at My Cardiologist, where we discuss a wide range of topics related to cardiovascular wellness and provide you with the knowledge, motivation, tips, and tools to help you make informed choices about your heart health. My Cardiologist is proud to be a leading provider of comprehensive cardiovascular care, serving the South Florida community for over 60 years. And we're thrilled to extend our care beyond the clinic through this podcast. Thank you for joining us. Hi, my name is Dr. Lauren Frost. I'm a non-invasive cardiologist. At my cardiologist, I've been in the practice for 10 years and lots of training before. I am from Miami, so I am lucky enough to practice where close by to where I live, and I'm excited to be here with you, Shana. I'm excited to be here with you, Dr. <laughs> Frost. It's fun getting out of the office and doing this. My name is Shana Rubenstein. I'm a nurse practitioner. I work with the, I have the honor of working with Dr. Frost. <laughs> Before this, I lived in D.C. where I was a registered nurse on a heart failure unit, and then I came here and I started working for my cardiologist about a year and a half ago. So that's some of my experience. Let's get started. Sounds great. So we're here discussing women's health, Mm -hmm. which is obviously we're both women. So this is important. I know that in women's health, women are commonly treated less aggressively. And why do you think this is? Or how do you see this in practice? Well, I think... I think I see a lot of it in practice for a few reasons, right? Uh-huh. Because one, I'm a female cardiologist, which is not common. We're actually very lucky in our practice, and it's very rare to have as many female cardiologists as we have, which is four out of like, I don't know, 25, 30 doctors. So to have any representation is unique in our practice, and mostly because our practice is a little forward-thinking. They've wanted to have female cardiologists and keep them and make them happy and help them with work-life balance. So naturally, I hear this many times a day, that women seek out women practitioners. So do men, to be honest, and I'll tell you for different reasons. But I mean, it's very common, and I hate to sound like, you know, a stereotype, but women feel like they've been dismissed very often by previous practitioners, whether it be cardiologists or other doctors, it's not unique to our field. Women can present, and we can go into a little bit more, a little atypically, Right. Because of the way that their nerves are are designed and their anatomy is a little different. So I think that um, it's important to really listen to the patients and take the time. And I'm not sure that patients, when they come to me, have felt that way about their previous male providers. I'm not trying to be yeah. sexist uh, at no, all. Of course. But that's a fact. That's also a fact in studies. And studies show this, that women are treated less aggressively and their complaints are more likely to be dismissed. And because of these atypical symptoms that you previously mentioned, can you talk about more the difference in presenting symptoms from men to women? Sure. I mean, depends what we're really talking about. I mean, cardiology is so vast and women have diseases the same you know, if not more than men in some respects. So, um, I mean, when you're talking about traditional symptoms, you're talking about coronary symptoms, which is the blood vessels in the heart and what cause heart attack. Um, And so you want to make sure that you're not missing angina. And most people, men and women, will have chest pain with a new presenting symptom of needing it to have intervention on their heart. Right. Um, Women can statistically have more of an atypical presentation. So... Everyone will have some degree of chest discomfort, 
but women may experience more as shortness of breath or back pain, um, nausea even, just new fatigue. And you have to really tease that out. I mean, with my experience, look at what I know about them, what I don't know about their heart, and what they should or shouldn't be having. Um, and right. I think the biggest challenge is the female anatomy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, diagnostic studies, and this is part of the problem why women haven't always been treated equally or as aggressively. Diagnostic studies of the heart in female patients are challenging because of the breast anatomy and that the heart sits underneath the breast, so mm-hmm. the breast get in the way in many ways they get in the tro- you know in the way yeah. and we have to decide how we're going to image and sometimes there's i think unnecessary studies sometimes that are performed just so that because people are so afraid of missing um, but i do think there needs to be just incorporation of yeah. the fact that there's a female body that, shape and you have yes. to work with it that's an interesting point you make about the imaging how the imaging and the the thought process behind what studies you order differs between men and women um, and how you can specialize that with women. I'm sure you've seen it in our cases yes. and our patients. And you always wonder, is this real? Is it not? Is it breast shadows? Is, what is it? Yeah. And is it ischemic heart disease or a blockage? Or is it something like heart failure where the heart isn't pumping enough blood? There's also differences in that um, in the presentation. So very interesting. What would you say the difference in risk factors are for women versus men? So there are some that are obviously very similar, right? Because mm-hmm. that's... I mean, you have to really target the majority of people. So for men and women, the same. High blood pressure, clearly, right? So every time they update guidelines, the thresholds are lower for everything. Lower for diabetes, lower for hypertension, lower for cholesterol goals. So assessing the blood pressure, I mean, ideally less than 130 over 80 Mm -hmm. is what I would say. Um, And cholesterol goals are different for everybody, depending on what their risks are. Obviously, diabetes control, not smoking, sedentary behaviors, sleep apnea, those are all very traditional risk factors, not unique to women. Obviously, very important to men, too. But women who have had certain circumstances and usually incorporating how their pregnancies went is a really Mm -hmm. important decision maker. So I have women who come to see me pregnant or after they've delivered with high blood pressure, with diabetes concerns, and I talk to them that the risks are going to go up, especially post menopausal, if they manage to get rid of those conditions, you know, during pregnancy. So pregnancy is a really big predictor on how the risk factors are going to perform later on in life. Um, So when you're pregnant, if you have high blood pressure or problems with diabetes, you're at higher risk for heart disease. Exactly. Well, usually later in life, but there are plenty of women who once once hypertensive in pregnancy, unfortunately are committed to be on blood pressure meds the rest of their lives. Yeah. It's interesting, though, how during pregnancy, um, if it presents in pregnancy, it actually goes away. Sometimes. So the blood pressure may go back to normal, not requiring medications, but then later on present. present. That's yes. I always found that interesting. Right. And hypertension is the least of their concerns, but preeclampsia and other complications of pregnancy really do carry forward later on the female yeah. life. Yeah. Speaking about risk factors, it's like, I just thought of this while we were talking about it, but... As far as the cholesterol and hypertension, I feel like it could, that's one of the ways that women are treated less aggressively, perhaps, um, medically, maybe their cholesterol, because the presenting symptoms of ischemic heart disease and cholesterol being one of the biggest risk factors, obviously, because of the plaque. Um, I, I've had the privilege of working with you and Dr. Rosenbaum, and your women are fabulously controlled cholesterol-wise with their lethal, their LDL cholesterol being low, and HL being higher, but um, 
do you, I found that it's important to aggressively treat that a woman too. Do you find a difference, I guess, or have you seen, what have you seen? Yeah, I mean, traditionally, historically, women have not been treated aggressively or let them also for blood pressure too. Yeah, Yeah. or they'll just say it's an emotional component. Yes, yeah, blood pressure, and you know, there can be emotional rises in blood pressure, of course, for men and women. Yeah, um, but I just don't let that slide. You know, I'm not convinced until I have proof of that, and I really take a deep dive. But uh, yes, historically, women have not been screened and treated and. Um, have been blown off many times. What aspects of heart disease do you think um, do you see as more of an issue in women than men? Like which parts of it is more important to control, I guess, like the blood pressure, the cholesterol, or all of it, or stroke, or, you know, what do you see the most, I guess? I mean, uh, all of them come into play. I mean, there are some statistics that say like a, a low good cholesterol in a woman is more of a risk factor but I, I don't use the numbers so much mm-hmm. as, you know, there's other screening techniques, which I'm sure have been discussed on the program, but a, a calcium score really helps you to know how aggressive to be with mm-hmm. that patient, right? Yeah. So I always am looking, always, I leave no stone unturned for the subclinical atherosclerosis that lets me know, okay, the LDL that might have been borderline <clears throat> right now you have an abnormal calcium score the bad cholesterol ldl try to find the reason for the that and if and you have to treat yeah statins. so what age would you start checking the calcium score or does that depend on risk factors i think it depends more on risk factors and it's my opinion there's no guidelines necessarily that say this but i think you know any proactive asymptomatic low risk patient who could be further risk stratified, meaning like maybe it's just their family history that you're worried about, or maybe their mom had an MI at 50. Well, that's a red flag. So it depends really on their family history Mm -hmm. and their other risk factors, but I don't see any harm in doing a calcium score. I see some outcomes after calcium scores that patients are very nervous about knowing that they develop heart disease, but I'm of the mindset personally and also as their doctor, I'd much rather know and be proactive. Yeah, I love that about you, by the way. Because <laughs> I know patients come in and, I mean, they don't have the best lifestyles. And it's hard to create a lifestyle that's heart healthy. Absolutely. The, I mean, yeah. I do. It's one of the first questions I ask somebody is, are you doing exercise and how much and what kind? Mm-hmm. Because I often get this and I know how to get around it. I do walk. I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so do you walk from point A to point B? Or do you put your sneakers on and you go for a walk with a less sustained heart rate elevation because the latter is what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for the fact that you can walk and run your errands. Like, that's not doing it. Yeah. So it's something I always ask in patients who see me. No, I think I'm going to ask. And, and they'll sometimes volunteer that they're going to the gym. But you don't have to go to a gym. You don't have to have pay an expensive membership to be fit, right? right? You can use a, a nice neighborhood park or... Um, indoor activities too. That's the excuse I always hear. We live in South Florida. And they say they haven't been exercising for the last six months because it's hot. Unfortunately, yeah. I have to say, like you're living in the wrong place. Stop giving me that excuse. You can exercise yeah. with like there are YouTube videos galore that are cardiovascular. There's like walk in place videos. I mean, it's 
there is yeah. many ways to get around this it's hot excuse. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I just watched Blue Zone on Netflix. Have you heard of it? <laughs> no, okay. but I want to watch so, it. This biker went across all the continents and he found populations that are living greater than 100 years old. He calls them Blue Zones. They're centurions who live up greater than 100. They're living healthier, longer, um, higher quality lives. And he seeks to find out why. And in all these populations, he finds kind of similar attributes. One of them is exercise. Sure. And then um, he actually found in Italy, the places with higher inclines. So going on inclines, those people live the longest. And I'm like, wow. Yeah. In Japan, they didn't have any furniture. So they did a lot of squats. Anyway, the next part was diet. What are the biggest dietary changes you'd say for people to make in their diet for a longer, healthier life? That's a great question. I mean, patients always come to me and they're like, put me on a diet. Tell me what diet. And I just have to go with what the guidelines say, right? So yeah. American Heart supports like a Mediterranean style of eating, which de-emphasizes red meat, right? Yes. And you should avoid high-fat dairy um, and really eat a lot more fish and lean meats like chicken and turkey. There's always somebody who has a butt, I can't eat that or I don't yeah, eat that. Yeah. And you, you do the best you can. Emphasis on the vegetables. Emphasis yes. on the you know, portion-sized nuts yeah, um, and, you know, whole wheat, whole, whole wheat grains. Yeah. And um, I, was, I guess, what's wrong with a bad diet? Why is that bad for your heart? What will it do to your heart? Well, the red meats have increased saturated fat, which is really yeah. what we're trying to avoid and what becomes the LDL cholesterol pretty directly. Mm -hmm. And is why diets like the keto diet, which have, you know, versions of it have been shown to have increased yeah. mortality risk, right? For like 22%. Oh, wow. I, yeah. And should be avoided. 22%. Yeah. Wow. I mean, people yeah. say keto, but they don't really know what keto is sometimes. Right. It's high in saturated fat. Yeah. And oh. nobody should do yeah. either one if they're trying to stay, you know, heart healthy. Yeah. Okay. So that's cholesterol based. How about for hypertension? Are there ways to improve your diet to better control your blood pressure? Sure. I mean, hypertension is a yeah. big one that will respond to diet yeah. and weight loss. Yeah. Um, but I think the most common fit, pitfall I see in the general yeah. population is is salt and sodium, right? People don't realize that when they eat out or they get takeout food, yeah. that oh, there is yeah. so much salt in there. And it's. Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm a detective when they come in when their blood pressure has been pretty good and all of a sudden it is not so good. All I do is ask what they've eaten in the last like two days. And they're like, oh, yeah, it was like that Greek takeout. I'm like, that's probably it. I mean, salt has like a direct correlation. And if you can eliminate salt, usually you're okay, obviously, with yeah. a combination of medications as well. Um, but, yeah, blood pressure is one that will definitely respond to diet, exercise, and weight loss. If you're a healthy person, is it important to monitor your salt intake, do you think? Or I mean, if, if you're young and beautiful like you, Shayna? No, like if you don't have <laughs> blood pressure issues yet. Right, probably not. But if you're borderline, maybe it'll help. Yes, that exactly. True? Okay. And there are ways to check and see um, if your blood pressure is well controlled besides taking it mm -hmm. or, yeah. Oh, besides taking it? I mean, you generally need a blood pressure measurement. Okay. I mean, we could use tools in cardiology to kind of suggest that your blood pressure is not controlled. Like if you do an echo, which is ultrasound yeah. of the heart, and you see thickening of the heart muscle, it could suggest that there is hypertension uh, and you just have it masked or don't know about it yet. Yeah. Or sleep apnea. There's a lot of overlap between sleep yeah. apnea and obesity and hypertension. Mm -hmm. 
So Dr. Frost, can you tell me more about unique diseases in women? Sure. I think the one that's become very famous is the stress cardiomyopathy. Takotsubo. Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Very good. Or broken heart syndrome, right? Um, which is a very interesting disease. Yeah, I didn't realize how prevalent it was. It's common. It happens in postmenopausal women. I mean, not super common. Like people, need, you know, we need to run for it. I mean, when it presents, it presents very dramatically. Sometimes often looks like a heart attack. And, and, and sometimes the only time you can figure it out is by doing a catheterization. But when you see this formation on echo, it suggests it, uh, where the base of the heart is very dynamic, but the rest of the heart is just weak and pooped out. It kind of suggests it. And, you know, I read echoes, so I'm, I've seen it many times on echoes. Very fascinating. And really, really, it's, um, it's a response to extreme stress. We're just not talking about, like, the traffic in Miami. You're talking about <laughs> the death of a loved one, um, you know, a catastrophic Illness. I mean, the, I've seen it with COVID, actually, um, in the elderly. And so I think that's very unique. We have not seen it in men, um, where it's just like a very inc sharp increase in catecholamines, mm -hmm. probably similar to spectrum. The of stress that. hormones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then this changes the lovely, amazing thing about this disease, thankfully, is that although the heart muscle might weaken to about half of what it was before, mm -hmm. it's, tra it's transient and temporary. In patients we put on medications, they'd probably go back to normal without it anyways. So that's a very unique disease in women that we've seen. Another another one, um, I know breast cancer yeah. leads to leads to problems. Can you tell us more about that? Yes. Or could so. lead to cardiac problems. Breast cancer is really common, right? I see so many women with breast cancer before, after, during treatment. Um, and, you know... There's not a direct correlation between breast cancer and heart disease because statistically most women are going to survive breast cancer and die of heart disease. So it's important that they're still following along with their cardiologist, but along with the, a lot of the chemo agents used to treat breast cancer can be cardiac toxic, mm -hmm. um, not just for the indication of breast cancer, for many other cancers as well, but because we're talking about women here. So there are women who can develop a weakness of the heart muscle or a cardiomyopathy related to many of the chemo agents. So knowing what they've taken yeah. is really important. Knowing, especially if it's left-sided breast cancer, I have a little bit more concerns because, again, your heart is right underneath the left breast. So it's kind of in the line of sight, especially if radiation has been used. Mm -hmm. And then I have seen, you know, acceleration of coronary disease, worsening of valve disease because of the radiation planes. So I always will ask and talk and think with them about um, – breast cancer diagnosis. Is. It comes up very often. And then a lot of them who have survived breast cancer mm -hmm. are put on oral chemo agents, like tamoxifen, if they've had hormonally sensitive cancers. Tamoxifen and letrozole, and you've seen them, right? Um, and astrozole, yeah. they come up, and a lot of those side effects happen to be hypertension. So it overlaps a lot in, in our field, and it's unique. And then I think it takes it's nice when there's a female provider talking to a woman, yeah. even as a cardiologist, about breast cancer because it's always going to be a sensitive subject for them. And then you get back into the discussion about knowing how to interpret their imaging because they've had many breast surgeries, they've had breast reconstruction, and it's very difficult to image through the outside of the chest wall to the inside of the chest wall and get through all their scar tissue or implants. And that's why you have to order very specific studies to get around that. 
Wow. And how often do you monitor or monitor for this during and after? I mean, they have protocols during their cancer treatment that sometimes mm-hmm. they get echoes every three months, depending on the toxicity potentials. Mm-hmm. And then after, once they, you know, have survived and they're doing well, I do do echoes every couple of years to make sure that they haven't had any of these secondary effects of the, any of the chemo or the radiation. Okay. When do you typically see effects from it? More current, more closer to the treatment. With the okay. Therapy. But I've diagnosed it for sure. Yeah. I've seen that. I've seen you do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So we talked about Takotsubo, which is specific towards women. We talked about breast cancer, which is specific towards women. We talked about pregnancy, mm-hmm. which is specific towards women. What are we missing? Menopause. Menopause. Yeah. Can we, let's do it. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's talk about menopause. Yeah. Tell but, me. But, but the women watching are not going to be happy looking at us talking about menopause, right? Because they're going to say that you don't understand. But I feel like once you've talked to enough women about menopause, I do understand what they're talking about, right? right. So um, menopause is a huge time in a woman's life where they develop a lot of cardiac symptoms that may be related to their heart or more commonly related just to the vasomotor response and hormonal changes and drop in estrogen. So I would say that any woman who's coming to see me as a new consult, between like 45 and 55, it's one of my first questions. Are you menopause? Are you premenopause? Are you going through menopause? And um, it helps me to frame like where they're at. So very commonly, it's when you start to see a sharp rise in their cardiovascular risk factors. Very commonly, I've never had high blood pressure until now. I know, I'm sorry, but we still have to treat it. I, I can't <laughs> believe my cholesterol numbers. I've never had cholesterol like this before. I know, we still have to treat it, right? I can't lose weight anymore. I'm miserable. I can't sleep. I'm hot. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and I feel for these women, and I try to coach them through it. And, you know, I don't think it's something we should focus on, but it comes up in practice a lot is a question of, of hormones, right? Mm-hmm. And it's definitely an area that's debated in the medical community and so I don't even want to put myself out there too much except to say that um, treatment with hormones needs to be very individualized because if they're a high-risk patient it can't you know hormones can raise blood pressure they can make you more hypercoagulable increase your risk of breast cancer so I think that any woman deciding to go on hormones needs to understand that what their risks are to be honest with you and to um, probably follow with a cardiologist. To you would think. Yeah. But, but there is ways probably around a good idea. it. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about the systemic estrogen. Um, vaginal estrogen doesn't carry as much risk or systemic absorption. And then there are other ways to treat menopause symptoms, especially in the category of SSRIs and SNRIs, antidepressant, anti-anxiety medications, have done wonders for my patients. They come back carrying their bottles and saying, thank you for this. Right, because, or they're just so irritable, their husbands are having a hard time tolerating them, or they're not tolerating their husbands, either way. Um, So there's a lot of, like, non-hormonal options that I always try to counsel my patients on, Mm -hmm. and I think that anyone who's trying to make a a wise decision about going on hormones from a cardiovascular perspective, again, I use other risk factor Mm -hmm. sort of stratification tools, but very individualized. Do you have any patient stories that you could share? Um, Tons of patient stories. Which one, I guess, female-specific sticks out to you as a prime example of why what we're doing is so important for women? Yeah. I can give you a few. So I just saw one of my 
very dear patients. Actually, yesterday, you know, some of my patients who I've helped through like catastrophic issues become close to me, right? And um, this woman who I saw yesterday, she is forty nine, fifty, like young. So this is not uh, typical, but she came to me probably over a year ago. She had seen, I think it was her third, at least third cardiologist. And she says, you know, I've had this chest pain when I run for a while. I'm like, you've had what? You know? (laughs) And she's like, yeah, but I've seen Dr. So-and-so and and Dr. So-and-so. And I did a stress test and I did okay. They just think I have a bicuspid valve. A bicuspid valve is two leaflets of the aortic valve versus three. Can age quicker, look more calcified. And I said, why do you say that? She said, well, I have a murmur and my, they've read my echo as abnormal. I said, okay. And the problem with her, unfortunately, is that she was a smoker. Mm-hmm. And so um, I said, well, I think, you know, stress testing can sometimes not sh- tell the whole picture. I said to her, I think we should approach it a different way because that's what you're here for me. Why would I just repeat the what you've done and not have the answers for you? Because it sounded like she was having very – Traditional stable yeah. angina symptoms. And sure enough, we did a CT scan and she had severe coronary disease. Like all of her vessels were blocked. She was hanging on by thread at that age and not feeling good still. And so we wound up, you know, quickly going through the cath and she had a bypass surgery. Wow. Which obviously is not very common at age that age group because she's premenopausal, right? But she unfortunately just maybe had like a family history or genetic predisposition and then the smoking just accelerated things so much. Yeah. So, and uh, she had chest pain and she had a normal stress test. It's true. So you were the one who really dug deeper there. Yes. I fear she had not come and seen you. I agree. Yeah. I that's wild. She was very sweet and like not tweeted. The other one like tagged me in posts of hers. She was Aww. very, very sweet yeah. about it. And so she still sees me and you, know, you started with that calcium score, that risk stratifier we talked about earlier. Oh, she had an actual CT and geogram, oh, but we got had, the calcium oh, score in there that was probably oh, over a thousand, okay. is my guess. But um, hers was more for diagnostic purposes. But um, she, I'm happy to say she's doing great, and obviously doesn't smoke anymore. And we were, have her on some really fancy, great medications to keep her alive a long time. So a lot of times chest pain comes across, people do dismiss it as anxiety, mm-hmm. especially in women. It's like, oh, I have chest pain. She had a normal stress test. Oh, it's probably anxiety. It's probably anxiety. And a lot of people probably gave up. So what would you say, I guess, to patients that continue to have symptoms? Or, you know, when do you, when do you stop worrying? Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to describe this, but I think- when should patients <clears throat> continue to pursue treatment um yeah I think in general most people know when there's something off and wrong and so you have to trust your gut and you trust Mm -hmm. your intuition um as a patient and if you don't have the answer if you're not finding the answers that you want and what they're saying doesn't make sense they need to go I mean there's eventually the end discussion right you can have the end discussion look Mrs. or Mr. So-and-so we have done a cath we have done an echo I mean there is a point in which there is no more right I have lots of you know ways to get there but there is a point when there is no more testing um but I just have been surprised and humbled a few times so I 
I am not one that gives up very easily. I will leave no stone unturned. I mean, mostly for the patients and shits, but also because I just, you know, there is an invite where you don't want to have legal consequences. Absolutely. So this patient presented with typical angina, mm-hmm. which is, you know, chest pain on exertion, or I would know it as like that crushing chest pain. Um, what are some examples of women who are presented with atypical angina um, and you were maybe even surprised? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I always would rather be proved wrong. Yes, Oh, tell me. Oh, another thing about women in general and everyone in general is heart rhythms. We haven't even touched yeah. upon. Yeah. Which we can do next. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, I can think of many women, right? So, yeah. um, you know, there's people who should have heart disease, right? Yeah. There's a woman who came to me and she was very short of breath just with walking around and she was overweight and that could have been a factor, but she was diabetic and hypertension. Her cholesterol mm-hmm. wasn't managed. I mean, she had all the risk factors. Yeah. And so she went on a stress test with me and that one had to be stopped because it was just some very concerning ST changes. And she went on to have um, many stents put in her heart. That was a shortness of breath on exertion. Yeah. yeah. And I had a woman who happens to be a family friend Came to me, was like very fatigued, just not feeling herself, maybe a little nausea. Definitely a strong family history, never seen a cardiologist before, um, but didn't have a lot of traditional risk factors, but that family history stuck out. And she had EKG changes, and I believe she went for either a cath or a CT scan, and she had very critical, like, disease of her left main. Oh, wow. She got two stents right away and had to cancel her cross Atlantic cruise that she was <laughs> like, oh. no, thanks. That's uh, fine. The, the real tragedy. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right. Uh, so I, I really want to touch upon anxiety because mm-hmm. I do feel like, especially with women, I'm not going to lie. I'm an emotional person. And when you have anxiety, um, you can feel chest pain, you could feel palpitations and those could just be part of the anxiety or it could be a cardiac issue. So we talked about chest pain. Can you tell me a little more about palpitations and what this could be or not be or how you assess palpitations? Right. That's a really common reason why people come in too, right, for palpitations. And I feel, and I tell the patients this too, because they'll tell me right away, I am anxious about whatever. And and is it anxiety? They'll ask me, is this anxiety or just something real? And, and it's very difficult to discern that. And so you have to do some cardiovascular studies. You have to do the monitors, make sure there's no arrhythmia. You have to do a stress test. And I almost do it sort of even in lower risk patients, sometimes as therapeutic measures to then say to them, okay, I am not in the business of diagnosing anxiety or treating anxiety necessarily, but I can tell you that we have done this test and this test and this test, and it's all normal. And then often that's really helpful to patients who can then go on and, you know, the follow-up for whatever reason comes back six months. Yeah, you know, it was. I went on this medication or I saw this doctor or I started exercising and using that to – or yoga, meditation, whatever people decide to do these days, whatever the trends are, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> whatever works for them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. it's really challenging. And I think that the world we're in right now, not just the new acute things that are going on, but the general world for the last couple of years, the pandemic in general has 
really changed um, the chemistry in people's brains. They are so much more anxious. They are so much more short-tempered. They want a quick fix. They are not kind to others as much. I just think that this last three years of extreme stress has um, really made anxiety <laughs> one of the top conditions that I see in patients come for a new symptom. Yeah. But you have to stay vigilant because it could be the nine of the anxious patients and one of the real disease, and you can't ever let off the gas and not be consistent and thorough and go through the right protocols and methodology to make sure you don't miss that one person. Right. Do you have any other stories that have been meaningful to you, like that you would like to share? Well, you're asking about palpitations, and I think a world, a world in cardiology is arrhythmias, right? So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> women come to when to in with palpitations all the time, but so do men. And Oh, yeah. So do men, by the way. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> men and, will come in for anything, and, by the way. And I have found <laughs> atrial fibrillation, not like commonly in that this should cause fear that everybody yeah. with palpitations has anxiety. But palpitations in an older woman, let's say postmenopausal, has, I have found a fib in women who shouldn't have a fib. And I tell them, you know, here you have a fib, you shouldn't have a fib, or some people should, right? What is a fib? I'm sorry, Shana, I should be explaining that to you. <laughs> That's why I'm here. I know. <laughs> um, so atrial fibrillation is a very common heart rhythm. You see all the commercials yeah. with those expensive blood thinners, Eliquis and Zarelto, and yeah. all over the TV. Because it's the one, like one of the top causes of stroke in the U.S. It's a regular heart rhythm. The heart doesn't beat in synchrony. You can form clots in your heart, and then you can have a stroke. And so the it's a big deal. It's a high risk situation, and you don't want to miss atrial fibrillation. And it and it happens. And yeah. it's almost like if you give up looking, if you stop looking, is when it happens most. Oh, yeah, that just happened yesterday. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, I've seen. <laughs> Many patients with yeah. atrial fibrillation, some of the atrial fibrillation cousins. I just had a patient who came back to me after not seeing me for eight and a half years, telling me about her stroke and new atrial fibrillation. Oh, my goodness. The risk factors are, though, um, alcohol abuse or use. People don't consider it abuse, but it, it really is. Um, hypertension, aging, mm-hmm. sleep apnea. I've probably mentioned sleep apnea many times. Um, and with sleep apnea comes obesity, right? So atrial fibrillation yeah. is very prevalent in um, not just Miami and in society, in the U.S., everywhere. And I think it's really important to be vigilant about that. Mm-hmm. The good news is the technology is pretty cool when it comes to looking for atrial fibrillation. So if you have a high index of suspicion, meaning you really think somebody has it, mm-hmm. then there are lots of diagnostic modalities that we can use in the short term, in the long term, as you've seen in our practice from short-term external monitors to implantable monitors and then these wearable devices, right? So um, I was actually asked to maybe talk about wearables. What about the iWatch? Right, so I think the Apple Watch is a great tool. You just have to make sure you're interpreting it with a physician, right? So I think the... Apple and also Fitbit, right, because I am not at all partial to one of them, have the ability to uh, detect the irregular rhythms. It sometimes is false positive, meaning it's telling you it's AFib, but it's really not. And that's where maybe a cardiologist would come in. But I think I encourage all my patients, if they can afford to have one of the watches that do EKG analysis, to wear them. Why not, right? Because 
atrial fibrillation can be hidden and come out very infrequently and still give you that risk of stroke. So I love when patients are wearing my Apple Watch. Going back to anxiety, though, I think that Apple Watches sometimes create some anxiety. <laughs> and so I have seen yeah. many a consult for patients who my Apple Watch is telling me this, fill in the blank. And so that can be yeah. a challenge. Um, yeah. But overall, I think the benefits of wearing a, a, a watch like smartwatch mm-hmm. is, is great, right? Yeah. And then similarly, there's another device that comes in a card these days or something where you put your fingers, the cardio with a K. Mm-hmm. I think that's nice too. I, it's cheaper and it's, it's okay. I think though it doesn't have the ability of continuously monitoring rhythms. Right. So it's not my go-to, but better than nothing if yeah. you, patients want to diagnose themselves. Yeah. <laughs> how often are those accurate? Or how often They're do very you catch good. it? Not accurate, I guess. How often do you, like, do people come in and it's actually a... So I have patients who know how to use them. Okay. And they've had a history of arrhythmia, and so they'll put their yeah. finger on the device with right. symptoms. I think that's when they could be very useful. Um, they are very accurate. Um, do you find that women are more active about their health? This definitely. is This is, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think women are a lot more proactive about their health. They mm-hmm. are more aware or have their ear to the ground about what's important to know. And, you know, there are men who come to see me, too, for similar reasons. But it's usually because my mom, my sister, my wife <laughs> made me come to make sure that I'm getting the right screening yeah. tools. I also know female cardiologists have a have a... I, I believe a better track record with the longevity of patients. And I think it's because of that too. Yeah. So kudos. That was in the New York Times. Yes, it was. Yeah. When do you think a woman should start to establish with the cardiologist? What, what age risk factors should kind of make a woman put their ears up and seek preventative health care yeah. and preventative cardiac care just to get evaluated? I don't think there's a right or a wrong answer to that. Mm-hmm. And I don't think everybody needs a cardiologist. There are some people, I mean, obviously I live in a very biased arena, right? Because that's all I do and all I see. But there are some women who are healthy. They are, you know, I mean, yeah. they've had their blood work checked. They've had their blood pressure checked. They're exercising. They're fit. They're not having symptoms. They may not need a cardiologist. The family history comes through very, very I mean, prevalently. So if you've had a first-degree relative, which means a parent or a sibling that have had heart disease, particularly at young ages. So for a woman, a young age would be like 55. For a man, it might be like 65. But premature disease um, is – I like seeing patients who just have family histories. Family history, though, is interesting because the generations above us often were – not doing everything that we're doing. Like there is a lot more prevalence of smoking and other things that are you don't see as much, right. but you still do, but not as much. So family history can come through and cannot. So I don't think there's an age. I think menopause, if a woman is interested in knowing their cardiovascular risk, menopause is a good time to start mm-hmm. if there is no reason to see a cardiologist sooner. And men, unfortunately, their risk factors go up earlier. So I think by 50, a man should see a cardiologist okay. to make sure they're Okay, is and it, then maybe they don't need one. It was interesting that you said that the premature heart disease in women was at a lower age. So if their family, if their yeah. first degree relative has had an event, okay. yes, that means it's a much 
it's a, for whatever reason, more aggressive. They have familial hyperlipidemia or something genetic we just don't know about yet. But that's like a red flag too. If a woman, if they're first degree relative, their mom, yeah. their sister, and we're not yeah. of the traditional risk factors, diabetes or smokers, then yes, yeah. I start looking really closely. Okay. Okay. Well, this has been so much fun. <laughs> I had a great time. Is there anything else before we wrap up that you think the audience should know? I think when it pertains to a female patient, right? Who, who are the women that come in, right? They're, they're mothers, they're working folks, they're taking care of their ill elderly parents. And so I think a lot of time women may kind of put themselves on the back burner, right? Because they're so busy being caretakers to others. And I think the message and what women hearts should be about too is making sure you understand that you think you're protected from heart disease, but Obviously, all of what we're talking about is that you're not protected from heart disease just because you're women and it can happen just the same, but maybe in a different presentation or maybe a little bit later in life. So education is important, mm -hmm. right? Knowing your statistics, knowing what your blood work shows, mm -hmm. making sure you're not sedentary. All those work from home folks need to start moving and grooving yes. is my opinion, but I think it's just about taking care of yourselves so you can continue to take care of others. All right, Dr. Frostle, this has been a pleasure. And thank you so much for doing this. I learned a lot. If you would mind just telling the audience where they could find you. So, sure. <laughs> so um, I work out of our South Miami office, which is in the South Miami Medical Arts Building right next to South Miami Hospital. I think the address is 6200 Sunset Drive. And our phone number is 305 666 we're all over the web. If you Google my cardiologist, we're right there. And my name is Lauren Frost, and um, we'd be happy to see you. She's the best. Go see her. <laughs> and you can find her. The information's down below. And thanks for listening. Thank you for tuning in. And make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already. To learn more about My Cardiologist, please visit us at mycardiologist.com.